Thank you very much. Well, today we come to a major shift in the book of Daniel. And the shift is not apparent to the naked eye, but uh, I'm going to explain it to you. So turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8, the 8th chapter of the book of Daniel. And let me explain the shift. In chapters 2 through 7, the book of Daniel is written in the Aramaic language, which was the ancient language of the Babylonians. And the events in these chapters deal with the Gentiles. Beginning in chapter 8, the language shifts, and Daniel begins to write in the Hebrew language, and the events in the remaining chapters deal with the Hebrew or the Jewish people. So that's the important thing that we need to know. <clears throat> but the remaining of the book includes dreams and visions, just like the first portion of the book included. So let's start at verse 1, and we're going to see Daniel's vision of the ram and the goat. Okay? Daniel's vision of the ram and the goat. First of all, let's look at the historical context. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. Now this is Daniel's second vision. The first vision that Daniel had was the vision of four beasts. And that had to do with the Gentiles and the Babylonian Empire. His second vision is going to deal with Israel. Now, at this point, Daniel's about 69 years of age. Okay, So he's not a young man anymore, but God is still speaking to him through dreams and visions. So that's the historical background. Let's look at the geographical context. The geographical context. Look at verse 2. Here's what he says. I saw in the vision, and it happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan. Now, that's the Hebrew. Some Bibles will say Susa, same place. I was in Shushan, the citadel, where the citadel or the palace was located, which is the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Uli. Now suddenly, Daniel is projected into the future, into the city of Susa or Shushan, which became, now listen carefully, which became the capital city of the Medo-Persian Empire. After Babylon fell, the Medo-Persian Empire rose up, and it chose as its capital Shushan, and that's where it had this fortress, or it's the palace where the king lived. And so, in a sense, Daniel, in this vision, is projected into the Medo-Persian Empire. He's projected into the future. Now, part one of the vision. That's the background, part one of the vision. Look at verse 3. Then I lifted my eyes, and I saw there, standing beside the river, a ram which had two horns. That's Part one of the vision. He sees a ram with two horns. Now, what in the world does this mean? Well, he interprets it for us later in the chapter in verse 20. Look down at verse 20. What is this ram? He says this. The ram which you saw 
having the two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia. So that's the answer. The ram is the Medo-Persian Empire. The two horns represent two kings, Darius and Cyrus. So that's what we know. Now it's interesting to me that he sees a ram, which represents the Medo-Persian Empire. We know from history, we know from documents, that the Persian Empire believed that it had a guardian spirit that protected it from outside forces. And its guardian spirit was a ram. So that's what Daniel sees. He sees a ram. The Persians were also Zoroastrians in their religion. That meant, means they worshiped the stars, and they believed that the heavenly bodies controlled the affairs on earth, and so they were always casting horoscopes. They believed in, in the zodiac, and they believed that the sign of the zodiac that influenced Persia was the sign Aries. Now we'll find out how many of you read your horoscope. <clears throat> what does Aries look like? Anybody know? It's the ram. So in his vision, Daniel sees the ram. Now look at verse 3. He says, he saw a ram with two horns. We know those are the two kings. And then it says this, and the two horns, that would be the two kings, Darius and Cyrus, were high, <clears throat> means they were very powerful, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Now this refers to King Cyrus who ends up ruling the whole empire eventually, and he's the most powerful of the kings, and he's the one that will eventually allow the Jewish people to go back to their homeland and rebuild the walls and reinstitute the law and rebuild the temple. They do that under Cyrus. And so Cyrus is the most powerful of the two kings. Verse 4 says, And I saw the ram, I saw the empire pushing westward, northward, southward, so that no other animal, no other kingdom could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver, be delivered from his hand. But he, the leader of this empire, did according to his will and he became great. And so here we see the advancing of the Persian Empire until it takes over the entire world, and Babylon is defeated. So that is part one of the vision. Ram, the Persian Empire. Let's look at part two of the vision, verse five. And as I was considering, suddenly a he-goat, or a male goat, came from the west. So now he sees a goat. Now what in the world is this goat? Well, we find out, don't we? Down in verse 21, look what it says. And the he-goat, or the male goat, is the kingdom of what? Greece. Now that's very important. Because Greece defeats Persia, and it becomes the next world empire. By the way, can anybody guess what the sign of the zodiac is that the Greeks believed ruled over their land? Capricorn. Now, for those who are horoscope buffs, give us the answer. What's the sign of Capricorn? The goat. So Daniel sees the goat. Now that's how God speaks to him. He speaks to him through a dream, shows him this next kingdom that's going to become the world power, and it's the kingdom 
of Greece. Look in the middle of verse 5. It says, And as I was considering, suddenly the male goat came from the west, and across the surface of the horn, without touching the ground, it just moved swiftly, just defeated one country after another, invaded one land after another. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And so it had one horn right between its eyes. It was sort of like a unicorn rather than a Capricorn. Now, what is this horn that appears between the eyes of the goat? Well, go back to verse 21, and you'll find out what it is. It says, the male goat's the kingdom of Greece, and look at this. The large horn that is between its eyes is what? The first king, which is Alexander the Great. So, Alexander the Great is the great horn. Now, keep reading in, in the book of Daniel. You still with me? We're at verse 6. This is going down verse by verse. Then he came to the ram, Persia, that had two horns, or two kings, which I saw standing beside the river. And look what this goat does. Look what Greece does. Ran at him with furious power. That's an attack. And I saw him confronting the ram, Persia. And he was moved with, this is very important, moved with rage, anger against Persia. Attacked the ram, attacked Persia. Broke his two horns, defeated both Darius and Cyrus. There was no power in the ram in Persia to withstand Greece. But he cast him down to the ground, trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. And so this is Greece's conquest of the Medo-Persian Empire. <clears throat> now, what's the motive? What's the motive that leads Alexander the Great to attack this other empire? Look in verse 7. It says, here's the motive. He was moved with what? Rage or anger. His motivation is revenge. Because historians tell us that Alexander's father, Philip of Macedon, from which we get our word Macedonia, he was the founder of Macedonia, as he was preparing for battle to attack the Persian Empire, he was killed. He was assassinated. And in an act of revenge, Alexander said, I'm going to attack them for killing my father. Sound familiar? <clears throat> One of the reasons that we believe that President Bush attacked Iraq was what? Revenge, because Saddam Hussein tried to have his father, George Bush, assassinated. And that's one of the big controversies right now that's swirling around. Why in the world did we attack them? Was it because of weapons of mass destruction or... Was there a hidden motive? The motive of revenge. Well, we don't know about that, but we do know about this. Alexander the Great attacked Persia out of revenge. Now look at verse 8. Therefore, the male goat, that's the Greece, the empire of Greece, grew very great. But when he became strong, now it's talking about Alexander, Look what happened. When the Greece Empire became strong, the large horn, Alexander the Great, was broken. 
Alexander the Great took over the entire world in three years. It's hard to believe. He was 20 years old when he got started. A 20-year-old general. He ruled from 23, the age of 23, the whole world until 33 when he died in an alcoholic stupor. Now, actually, what happened was he didn't die of cirrhosis of the liver. He died of blood poisoning. He consumed so much alcohol that his blood content got poisoned and he dropped dead at the age of 33. At the height of his power, and that's what that verse is talking about. Now, this is all prophecy. By the way, let me explain something. This is why the liberals say that Daniel really didn't write this book, you know, in uh, the 500 B.C.s. They say that he actually wrote the book in the 2nd century B.C. After all these events took place. But he just made out he was writing in way. They said he actually wrote after these events took place because no one can know these events beforehand. See? But Daniel says it's a prophecy. And he actually did know it beforehand, and it is unbelievably accurate. So what we have is we have Alexander dropping dead at the age of 33. And then it says in the middle of verse 8, and in its place, in the place of the horn, or Alexander the Great, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. Since Alexander had no heirs to take over the throne, his kingdom was up for grabs. And the four leading generals, one was from Egypt, one was from another place, and one was from Syria, and one was another place, his four leading generals joined forces together, combined their forces, and they defeated all the other opposition. And then what they did is they divided the empire of Greece into four sections, each one ruling a section. And that's what that verse is about. But you know, there's an old saying. Why have only a piece of the pie when you can have it all? And so two of the generals rose up in greater power, one named Ptolemy from Egypt, and the other named Seleucid from Syria. <clears throat> and they fought over control of the entire empire. And for a while, Ptolemy ran the empire from Egypt. And then later, Seleucid got his forces, and they got stronger, and they defeated Ptolemy, and Seleucid ran the empire from Syria. And so that's what's happening here. Now look at verse 9. And you'll see what I'm talking about because it says, and out of one of them, <clears throat> see, out of one of those generals, came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east and toward the beautiful or the glorious land which is Israel. And we know that out of the Seleucids, out of the Syrian portion of the Greek Empire, there rose another horn, another leader, by the name of Antiochus IV. Now Antiochus IV was a maniac. He was a ruthless king, and he came to power in 175 B.C., by killing his nephew, assassinating his nephew, who was ruling the empire at that time. And so he rises up, it says, and he comes 
toward the glorious land or the beautiful land, which is Israel. So he's going to invade Israel. And you know that's exactly what he does. In 171 B.C., he invaded the promised land. And look what it says in verse 10. And this horn, Antiochus IV, grew up to the host of heaven. Now, what in the world does that mean? It grew, he grew up to the host of heaven. Well, that means he is starting to see himself as something that is more than human. He starts looking at himself and seeing himself as something that's divine. And it casts down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Now, what in the world does that mean? He cast down stars. Well, he literally didn't, couldn't do that. Now, stars in the Bible can mean angels, and, uh, but we know that he had no power to cast down angels. But what we're thinking is two things. One, the leaders of Israel, he subjected them to himself when he invaded. That's number one. Sometimes our leaders are called stars, aren't they? He's a star on the political scene. So that could mean that, that he trampled down the stars. Or it simply could mean that he placed himself above everything in the universe. He said, I am God. And we believe that that's exactly what happened. But he also, we know, did defeat the Jewish leaders from other passages in the text, as we'll see when we get into the, into the verses like 24 and 25. But look at verse 11. He exalted himself. How high did he exalt himself? As high as the prince of hosts, as God. He exalted himself as God. And what happens is that Antiochus IV eventually proclaimed himself to be God. And he minted coins with his image on the coin and the words theos, meaning God, epiphany, which means manifestation. And so when you looked at the picture on one side, there was a picture of Antiochus, and it said, the manifestation of God, epiphany the manifestation of God. The Jewish people changed his name by one letter. They called him Epiphany, which means madman. So they went from Epiphany, manifestation of God, to madman. So that's what they called him. They called him the madman. Now look in verse 11. It says, he exalted himself as high as the prince of hosts, as high as God. By him, by Antiochus, the daily sacrifices in the temple were taken away. There was a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice for the sins of the nation. He, he halted that, it says. They were taken away. And the place of his, the capital H, God's sanctuary, was cast down. He desecrated the temple of God. Verse 12 says, because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this, and he prospered. He just went right in, and he literally desecrated the temple in Jerusalem. So let me tell you what we know from historical lessons, not from the Bible, but what we know from history. We know this from Josephus, we know this from other secular books, and we also know this from the book of 1 Maccabees. 
which is a book that's in the Catholic Bible between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Not inspired, but it's a good, solid history book. And if you want to know what happened between the last word of the Old Testament and the first word of the New Testament, one of the places to go is 1 Maccabees. And here's what we learn about Antiochus Epiphanes during that time. In 175 B.C., he gains power. Okay? 171 B.C., he invades Egypt, that other general, and takes over the whole empire. In Later in that year, in 171 B.C., he invades Israel under the pretense of being a peacemaker. He says, I've come in here to bring peace. The first thing he does, however, he takes the high priest of the temple in Jerusalem and he replaces him with one of his cronies. First thing he does. His crony is assassinated immediately. This enrages Epiphanes, so he demands that the sacrifices in the temple be stopped he demands that Jews have to work on the Sabbath. He demands that they can no longer keep the kosher food laws. They have to eat pork. And he demands that no one can own an Old Testament. All in 171 B.C. And then what he does, he walks into the temple and he says, From now on, I am God. You're to worship me. I am Antiochus Epiphanes, the manifestation of God. He grabs the high priest that is on duty at this time, who's replaced his crony, and he says, and now I want you, he builds an altar to Zeus in place of the altar of God, and he says, I want you to sacrifice a pig on this altar in the temple of God. And the high priest by the name of Mattathias says, I will not do it, and another guy steps up thinking he'll get the emperor's uh, blessings and says, I will do it. And he takes the pig, and when he does, Mattathias strikes him dead, right on the scene. He immediately leaves the temple, Mattathias leaves the temple, and with his five sons, he runs to the Jordanian hills, and from the hills, and with his supporters, leads a guerrilla war against the leader of the entire world, Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes. And so now we have a war that's going on in Israel, between rebel troops or guerrilla troops from the mountains who will come down at night and attack and the king of the world Mattathias's one son by the name of Judas becomes the general of the guerrilla forces and he becomes known as Judas Maccabees which means Judas the hammerer he's like Patton he's not afraid of anybody he says I'll lead the troops and he gets all of these troops, and they follow him. So that's what's going on here. Now look at verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will this vision be? And he, Daniel sees evidently angels talking about between themselves, asking about this vision that he sees. And he says, How long will this vision be? be concerning the daily sacrifices. How long, in other words, will the temple be closed down and be desecrated? And the translation or the abomination of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, it will last 2,300 days. Then the sanctuary will be cleansed. It all ends. 
Now, I wish I could spend an hour telling you about the crazy interpretations that people have regarding what are the 2,300 days that Daniel sees in his vision. But I'll only tell you one. Back in the early 1800s, there was a man by the name of William Miller. He was the forerunner of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. He said the 2,300 days actually represented 2,300 years. And so he went from 171 and he added 2,300 years and somehow he came up with 1843. Yeah. He said in 1843 what was going to happen is that Jesus Christ was going to come back. And guess what? He didn't come back. And then he, and he thought Christ would come to earth, set up a temple, make sure it's cleansed and all that. He didn't come back. So he switched his date, and he said, well, he's going to come back in 1844. October 1st, 1844. And guess what happened? He didn't come back. And so he said, well, I misinterpreted the text. Really what happened, something did happen in 1844. He says, now what happened is Christ moved from the right hand of God the Father, got off his throne, and he went into the heavenly tabernacle, because we know there's one up there, and he cleansed it. He cleansed it. And that's what the 2300 days is. Okay, Now that's, that's the cr kind of crazy explanations that you have when you're trying to figure all this out. Now I'm going to tell you what really happened. Okay? <laughs> Here's what really happened. We know this from the book of Maccabees, and we know this from Josephus. On December 25th, what would be our December 25th, 164 B.C., Judas Maccabeus from the Jordanian hills comes in and attacks the full forces of Antiochus Epiphanes. Judas Maccabeus is outnumbered 8 to 1. Antiochus Epiphanes has 47,000 troops in the city. Judas has 6 thousand guerrilla forces. Antiochus Epiphanes has elephants just like Hannibal that are going to lead his forces. Judas Maccabeus has stones and spears and the Maccabeans defeated Antiochus Epiphanes and drove them out of Jerusalem and thus the Jews regained their temple. And the first thing they did is they lighted the candle stand. You know, in the temple, there was a table of showbread and there was a candle stand. So they lighted the candle stand, which, of course, was an oil lamp. But there was a problem. They needed to light it, first of all, to cleanse the temple because you couldn't see inside of it. It was dark. There was a problem. All they had was enough oil for the light to last one day. And they knew they wouldn't be able to cleanse the temple in one day. But miraculously, the light remained aflame for eight days with one day's worth of oil. And it was a miracle. And suddenly, an old Jewish rabbi remembered Daniel chapter 8, verses 13 and 14 that the temple would be cleansed 2,300 days after it had been desecrated. And he started counting back from December 25th to the day that Antiochus proclaimed himself to be king. And it was 2,300 days exactly. 
And as a result of that, they formed a holiday called the Feast of Lights, because the lights stayed lit for eight days, or the Feast of Dedication. Now keep your finger here, because Jesus talks about this feast. <clears throat> At least it's mentioned in John chapter 10. John chapter 10. And look down at verse 22. John chapter 10 and verse 22. Now this whole section from John chapter 8 and verse 12 where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The whole section here in John's gospel deals with light. And in John 10, 22, it says this. Now it was the feast of what? Dedication. That's the feast of lights in Jerusalem and it was winter <clears throat> and Jesus walked into the temple in Solomon's porch and he's confronted with the Jews and he starts answering their questions but that feast of dedication that you see in verse 22 was started back there in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14 so that's the beginning of that feast. So it's mentioned in the New Testament. Now, let's find out what all this means, okay? Now, I've given you a lot of the interpretation up front, haven't I? Just like I did last week. So we won't spend as much time just going through the rest of the chapter. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 8 and look at verse 15. It says, Then it, then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and I was seeking the meaning, now I'm trying to get the interpretation, that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. However, we know that's an angel. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Now, this is the first time in the Bible that the angel Gabriel is introduced. First time he's mentioned. He will be mentioned several other times, and he comes to Joseph and Mary and tells them about the birth of Jesus. So now he's going to interpret the dream or the vision for Daniel. Verse 17, so he came near where I stood. And when he came near, when Gabriel came near, I was afraid and fell on my face. Just imagine how you'd feel if an angel showed up at your door. And he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. I was laying on my stomach, but he touched me and stood me upright. And he said, look, I'm making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. For at the appointed time, the end shall be. Now, three times in this passage, Gabriel mentions the end. Now we have to ask ourselves the question, the end of what? Does this mean the end of Antiochus Epiphanes' reign? Or does this mean the end of the world? And that's where it's very difficult. Now I'm going to just tell you what I think. I think it's a dual prophecy. I think that this is what happens when the sanctuary at the end of Antiochus' reign in Jerusalem and the sanctuary is cleansed. 
But I also believe that it's going to occur, a very similar event is going to occur at the end of the age. When the Bible says the Antichrist will come, and he will invade Jerusalem, and he will stand in the holy place, and he will proclaim himself to be God, and there will be an abomination of desolation, Jesus said, as was spoken by Daniel the prophet. So we have a dual prophecy here. That's not unusual. We've seen it before as we've studied the Bible. So Antiochus Epiphanes, in a sense, is a prototype of the Antichrist. If you want to know what the Antichrist is going to look like, just look at this guy, and you'll find out what he is going to be like. And so that's where I'm going to come down at this point. Now look at verse 20. The ram which you saw, and we've already gone over this, having the two horns, they're the kings of Media and Persia, Darius and uh, Cyrus. The male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn is that uh, first king, Alexander the Great. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall rise out of that nation, out of Greece. And we saw that happen, but not with its power. And in the latter time, this is why we have to link it to Antiochus Epiphanes, of their what? Kingdom. You see that? Of their rule. So it relates to those four historical generals. When the transgressions have reached their fullness, a king shall rise having a fierce countenance. And that's Antiochus Epiphanes in the immediate context and the Antichrist in the remote context. Notice he's not a pleasant fellow. It doesn't say he smiles. This concept that the Antichrist is going to be just a charismatic guy who just smiles all the time and everyone's going to really like him and fall in love with him. It doesn't say it, does it? It says a person of fierce features, fierce countenance countenance not a nice person how in the world does he make it then well here's how he does it who understands sinister schemes he's a schemer he's a liar he's a, a manipulator his power shall be mighty but not by his own power look at that this man's power is delegated it comes from somewhere where do you think it might come from it probably comes from satan we know the antichrist Power comes from Satan. Why not Antiochus Epiphanes? Delegated power. He shall destroy, King James says, wonderfully. New King James says, he shall destroy fearfully. He is on a rampage. He shall prosper and thrive. People will not be able to stand against him. He shall destroy the mighty. There you are. That's the leaders. And also the holy people. That's the ordinary Jewish people. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. It will be a corrupt government. He shall exalt himself in his heart. That's what happened to Lucifer. Lucifer exalted himself in his heart. Pride was found in his heart. He thought he was a beautiful being, and he was, but he allowed it to go to his head. So he'll exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He'll cause a lot of people to go bankrupt. He'll bring depression upon a lot of people, but he himself will prosper. He shall rise up against the prince of princes, which we believe is a reference to God and possibly even Jesus. He shall be broken without human means. So now we see Antiochus Epiphanes and even the Antichrist are going to be defeated, and it's going to be a miraculous defeat. 
Antiochus Epiphanes defeated with stones. When he has elephants, he outnumbers the Jews eight to one. That was a miraculous defeat. Obviously, they, were, they couldn't defeat him. God was on their side. And the Antichrist, he'll be defeated when Christ comes down, and the scripture says, and the sword of the Spirit will come out of his mouth, and the Antichrist will be defeated. And the vision of the evenings and the mornings, which is told, is true, Daniel. You can count on it. It's going to happen. Therefore, here's what I want you to do. Seal up the vision. Look, seal up the vision. That's interesting, isn't it? Preserve it. Keep it. Keep it secret. Don't open it. Now, when he said seal up a vision, he's talking about taking a manuscript that Daniel wrote down on, and I want you to start rolling it up and then put some wax there and seal it there. Roll it again. Put some wax there and seal it there. Roll it again. Put some wax there. Seal that thing up so the vision's hidden. I'm not ready to reveal it to anybody. I've revealed it to you, Daniel, but... I don't want a whole bunch of other people to know it at this time. So keep it secret. It's for Daniel's eyes only. Now, you also know, you've studied the book of Revelation, that in chapter 5 and chapter 6, John, in his vision, sees a document that's sealed, and there's no one who can open the seal. And they say, well, who can open it? And finally, there's only one who's found able to open it, and it's the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And when he opens it, it opens up to chapter 6 of Revelation and suddenly all the details of the vision. What's going to happen in the last days on earth are unveiled. And so I believe that that is probably the same document that's mentioned right here. So he tells him to seal it up. Look what else he says. For it refers to many days in the future. It's not right for now. So therefore, no one needs to know about it. Seal it until the future. Okay? And then look at Verse 27, verse 27. Here we have Daniel's reaction. First, his immediate reaction. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. What he saw made him sick, made him nauseous. He wasn't excited. He said, oh, 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 oh. now I know the future. Oh, 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 oh. Isn't this exciting? No. It was so scary that it made him sick. Now, some of you have already seen The Passion of the Christ. And you walked out of the movie theater, and guess what? You were sick. You were silenced. You were sobered. Just from a movie. This is God's movie. He's revealed something to Daniel. And he's absolutely silenced. He can't even speak. It's, it's affected him for days. That's his immediate reaction. Look at his intermediate reaction in verse 27. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. His immediate reaction. He gets back to work. He doesn't run to the mountains to escape this future. He doesn't write a series called The Last Days or Left Behind or 666 or... <laughs> You knew I had to say something like that. <laughs> he gets back to work. And then look 
at the ultimate, his ultimate reaction, he said, I was astonished, astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. He leaves the vision in God's hands. He was awestruck, but he says, guess what? The future is the future. There's nothing I can do about it. He leaves it in God's hands. And I think that uh, this is the message for us today. Our immediate reaction to this vision and to end-time prophecies is that we shouldn't dwell on it. Because we don't have all the details. It's been sealed. See, this vision that we have of Daniel, he's just given us the real skinny little outline. The details are in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. And even then we don't understand it all. So we shouldn't be dwelling on it. Second of all, our, immediate re our intermediate reaction is that we need to get back to work. We need to get back to our king's business. Jesus, when he was ready to ascend into heaven, the disciples said to this, Jesus, will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? Has the end come now? And Jesus said, hey guys, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which God has reserved for himself. But you need to get about the king's business. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Our job is to be out there and occupy until he comes. And finally, our ultimate response is that God holds the future. And as long as we know that God holds the future, we know everything is okay. And that's the key. So that's Daniel's prophecy, written in Hebrew for his people. So this is the message for us. Chapter 9, we pick up with Daniel's prayer for his people, a very interesting section, especially when we get down to the last five or so verses of the chapter 9, which deals with Daniel's 70 weeks. And we'll probably deal with that next week and the week after. Let's pray. We have one question right here. Revelation 5 and Revelation 6. It talks about a scroll that was opened that couldn't be opened and they found Jesus and he opens the scroll and it reveals what's going to happen in the last day. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this class. I thank you for each person here who comes because they want to know your word. Help us to be balanced in our approach to prophecy. Help us to realize that you have things in control. And since you control the future, you've given us an assignment for the now and for the present. So, Lord, help us to be obedient to that and share our faith with others. Help us to tell people that you reign and that your kingdom will be for everlasting to everlasting, that we can get in on it. if We just uh, turn away from our own self-rule and we turn to the rule of Jesus Christ in our lives. In his name we pray. Amen.